Uh, so I've never been particularly keen of like asking for a show of hands uh, from the front or surveying the room, uh, but I'm interested about one thing, so I'm gonna ask the question. Um, and you can indicate yes or no by raising your hand. Uh, who in the room has heard of or read or maybe even memorized the Apostles' Creed? Okay, so a vast majority of the room. That's, that's what I suspected. Um, the Apostles' Creed was written in the fourth century, and it's been used for generations as, as a tool in the church to kind of tether us to sound doctrine. You know, uh, from time to time, the church will, will establish these creeds that are short, uh, succinct, unambiguous articulations of what it is we believe. Um, and they, they help us from drifting outside of orthodoxy. And now, none of these creeds we hold up on the same uh, stratosphere as Scripture, but we do recognize the helpful tool that they are. And the Apostles' Creed um, is, is particularly lovely. Um, it it kind of transcends denominational boundaries. It's used in some congregations as worship and liturgy. Other denominations cite it before baptisms. Other churches use it as their entire statement of faith. It's used in the Eastern Church. It's used in the Western Church. It's, it is just held up as a very helpful and universal tool in the church and has for the last 1,600 years. And so I'm actually just going to uh, read it in case any of you are maybe unfamiliar or a bit hazy on what it says. Again, it's short and it's quite lovely. Because I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. It's a lovely creed. Really helps tether us to sound doctrine. Like I said, we've been using this in all corners of the church for the last 1,600 years. It's a really cool thing to be connected with generations past of believers through a common creed. What I found funny as I was reading it again was the recognition that there are five people, there are five persons named in the Apostles' Creed. We have God the Father, that makes sense. We have Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit, we have the Virgin Mary, and we have Pontius Pilate. He is the fifth of the five persons mentioned in this centuries-old important creed. Again, we have the Trinity, that makes sense. We have the mother of Jesus, that makes sense. And then we have this guy from our story who somehow weaseled his way into this creed. And it's even more laughable and kind of absurd a reality when you consider who Pontius Pilate actually was. Uh, he was not an important man. He was something of a second-rate Roman politician at best, uh, who was given governorship in Palestine because that's where they sent their least talented people. He spent 10 years ruling in Israel, which is not a thing to be proud of. Uh, these, these governors kind of moved around and advanced, you know, as they showed their chops. 
but Pilate was kind of just sent to Palestine and parked there to be forgotten about. Um, he detested his own role. He didn't like uh, his constituents. He was hated by the Jewish people. Um, historians have said, you can say much about Pontius Pilate. The one thing you can't say about him is that he was a person of integrity. Um, history remembers him as a weak, ineffectual, um, small leader. And yet, here he is, one of the five persons named in this tool the Christian church has leveraged for generations. And you might think, well, okay, surely the only reason he found his way into the creed was to attach some kind of historical traceable figure to the life of Jesus. And sure, that would make sense. But also, if that was the primary motive, there would be so many better candidates to kind of pencil in there, right? So many more prominent figures that history remembers far better. Much more was written about them in history, like Emperor Tiberius of Rome. Like, he would have been a far more fitting candidate. Um, or, or Caiaphas, or King Herod, you name it. These figures would have made a lot more sense if we were just trying to attach Jesus to some kind of traceable historical moment. And yet, no, we don't get any of them. We get Pilate. So why? Why is it so important? Why did the framers of the Apostles' Creed deem it necessary to say that he suffered under Pontius Pilate? I mean, didn't he suffer under plenty of others? There were other ruling authorities who were part of his trial. Why mention Pilate? And I would suggest that it's because the framers of the Apostles' Creed wanted to elevate this particular scene, these 15 verses of Mark. They want that these are the verses that made Pilate famous, and they wanted to elevate them to a special place. They wanted to ensure that generations of Christians would hold up the trial of Jesus as one of the single most consequential and significant events in all of human history. And, and sadly, we tend, even though that's there, that might have been their intention, we tend to not do that anymore. You know, when we tell the story of Jesus' last week, uh, we have robust depictions and sermons on his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, right? We talk a lot about the Last Supper, the institution of the New Covenant, um, his time in Gethsemane, and then his time on the cross. And, I mean, obviously, these are all heavy hitters. We give them the credit they deserve. But when we're walking our way chronologically through this story, we don't give the same kind of credit to the trial. Like, we're tempted to see this just as a transitionary scene that gets us from the upper room to Calvary. Like, well, I mean, come on, this trial was a foregone conclusion, right? Like, this was just a formality that saw the death sentence formally levied, right? Like, that's all this was. Well, not quite. So how else are we supposed to see it? What more are we to make of these 15 verses in Mark? Well, to get there, we need to first take a short uh, field trip through ancient Jewish history. Uh, roughly 600 years before the life of Jesus, God sent his prophet Isaiah to speak to the people. 
Um, and this was a time when the relationship between God and his people was particularly strained. I mean, they were, they were rapidly approaching um, an all-time low. And the prophet Isaiah communicated just how displeased God was with the situation. Uh, here's out of Isaiah 1. Uh, this, is, this is God speaking through Isaiah. It says, I raised children, I brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. An ox recognizes its owner, a donkey recognizes where its owner puts its food, but Israel does not recognize me. My people do not understand. You observe new moon festivals, Sabbaths, and convocations, but I cannot tolerate these sin-stained celebrations. How tragic that the once faithful city has become a prostitute. She was once a center of justice. Fairness resided in her, but now only murderers. Your officials are rebels. They associate with thieves. All of them love bribery and look for payoffs. They do not take up the cause of the orphan or defend the rights of the widow. So, so it's an incredible, incredibly bleak picture, and this is just one short excerpt of many describing the situation and this tense, strained relationship between God and his people during this time when Isaiah was writing. And a result of all of this, God says, I have been patient with you for so long. I've, I've endured all of this for far too long, but you've shut your ears to me, and so I'm repealing my protection from you. There's going to be punishment for this. And so Isaiah foretells the collapse of their city and how they'll be carried away into foreign lands. And history remembers this is exactly what happens. Babylon conquers Jerusalem, destroys it, and then carries off all of its wealth and carries off its people as well. What is also foretold in Isaiah is a future deliverance from this fate, right? Not just from their estrangement from the land, but their estrangement from God as well. And time and time again through the book of Isaiah, in beautiful, poetic, charming language, uh, we, we hear these promises of deliverance in language that seems very consistent with what we would think as a typical, heroic strong figure, right? Like in Isaiah 52, in the words of God says, is my hand too weak to deliver you? Do I lack the power to rescue you? Look, with a mere shout, I can dry up the sea. I can turn streams into a desert. In the next chapter, Isaiah 51, he says, I am ready to vindicate. I am ready to deliver. I will establish justice among the nations. The coastlands wait patiently for me. They wait in anticipation for the revelation of my power. And then again in the next chapter, the Lord reveals his royal power. In the sight of all the nations, the entire earth will see our God deliver. And we think, yes, this is awesome. Do it. Be this strong, heroic type figure that the moment demands. And God says, yes, I do have a plan to deliver my people. Exactly. And here's how I'll do it. I intend to deliver my people and heal this estrangement through my servant. And now let me tell you all about my servant. Now I'm going to read a large section from Isaiah 52 and 53, and these are going to constitute the most important words 
that I say today. This is the best part of what you're going to hear this morning. I care very little if you remember anything else, if you walk away with this. This is what Isaiah prophesied would be true of the servant of God who would be the healer of the relationship. He says, look, my servant will succeed. He'll be elevated, lifted high, and greatly exalted. And we think, yeah, of course. We just heard those heroic strongman texts. What's he going to be like? Just as many were horrified by the sight of you, he was so disfigured he no longer looked like a man. His form was so marred he no longer looked human. So now he will startle many nations. Kings will be shocked by his exaltation, for they will witness something unannounced to them, and they will understand something they had not heard about. Who would have believed what we had just heard? When the Lord's power when was the Lord's power revealed through him? He sprouted up like a twig before God, like a root out of parched soil. He had no stately form or majesty that might catch our attention, no special appearance that we should want to follow him. He was despised and rejected by people, one who experienced pain as when, and was acquainted with illness. People hid their faces from him. He was despised, and we considered him insignificant. But he lifted up our illness. He carried our pain. Even though we thought he was being punished, attacked by God, and afflicted for something he had done, he was wounded because of our rebellious deeds, crushed because of our sins. He endured punishment that made us well. Because of his wounds, we've been healed. All of us had wandered off like sheep. Each of us had strayed off on his own path, but the Lord caused the sin of all of us to attack him. He was treated harshly and afflicted, but he did not even open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughtering block, like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not even open his mouth. He was led away after an unjust trial, but who even cared? Indeed, he was cut off from the land of the living. Because of the rebellion of his own people, he was wounded. They intended to bury him with criminals, but he ended up in a rich man's tomb because he had committed no violent deeds, nor had he spoken deceitfully. The Lord desired to crush him and make him ill. Once restitution is made, he will see descendants and enjoy long life, and the Lord's purpose will be accomplished through him. Having suffered, he will reflect on his work. He will be satisfied when he understands what he has done. My servant will acquit many for he carried their sins. So I will assign him a portion with the multitudes. He will divide the spoils of victory with the powerful. Because he willingly submitted to death and was numbered with the rebels, when he lifted up the sin of many and, was in, and intervened on behalf of the rebels. God says through the prophet Isaiah, this is how I describe the person who will save you. Wait for this one. He says also of this figure, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. 
And for centuries, the people wondered who this figure might be. Remember, these words were written 600 years before the life of Jesus. And over the centuries, as time passed, they started to lose an appetite, expecting this kind of figure to be their rescuer. And frankly, you, you, you can't blame them for that. Um, expecting this kind of figure to be your deliverance uh, is, is truly a paradox. John Calvin talks about this paradox well. He describes it this way. It is reckoned to be folly because it exceeds all human capacities. Achieving exaltation through suffering is a strange thing indeed. It is foolishness in our way of doing things. And that foolish idea evidently took its toll on the people over time. And their expectations of who might restore the people's land and their relationship with God reverted back to classical heroic demonstrations of strength. And so would-be messiahs routinely emerged, uh, leading revolts, armed rebellions, these kinds of things, and all were eventually tamped down. And then at long last, after 600 years of waiting and forgetting how to wait for him, we have Jesus. Remember in our text today, we heard the words, and Lisa, you can put the next slide up. The chief priests began to accuse him repeatedly, so Pilate asked him again, have you nothing to say? See how many charges they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no further reply, so that Pilate was amazed. Entirely reminiscent of what I just read in Isaiah 53. He was treated harshly and afflicted, but he did not even open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughtering block, like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not even open his mouth. He was led away after an unjust trial, but who even cared? Today we also read that Pilate had Jesus flogged, Mark 15, 15. We get something similar in Isaiah 52. It, he was so disfigured, he no longer looked like a man. His form was so marred, he no longer looked human. And you see, being flogged was not a prerequisite for crucifixion. In fact, to add flogging to crucifixion would have been truly cruel and unusual punishment. Usually you got one or the other. Most people who were flogged died. Um, and I won't be too graphic about flogging, but it absolutely left you indistinguishable from your former self. The way it just shredded the skin off your body. It was torture. And for some reason, historians still argue why. Why did Pilate have Jesus flogged? Just another fulfillment of the prophecy. And then like we read today, Pilate asked the crowd, then what do you want me to do with the one you call king of the Jews? And they shouted back, crucify him, reminiscent of Isaiah 52. He will be despised and rejected by his own. The suffering servant, the one who would be given to these people, the one that they had been improperly but still waiting for for centuries, was the very one that they demanded be crucified. And I thought, it, I thought it very strange initially that the text indicates that Pilate was amazed at Jesus' silence. Like, 
I don't know, I thought, surely this isn't the first person brought before him who's silent during the trial, right? Like, witness any trial today, and in a majority of the cases, the defendant will usually have their head down, um, they'll be quiet, maybe a posture of contrition, I don't know. That kind of silent posturing seems very typical of what we understand in trials today. So, what was so amazing about this? Um, other translations have suggested he was just surprised, like he expected differently. Like, well, this is the guy who gives sermons, makes speeches. I'm surprised he's quiet. Others said he was just perplexed. Again, kind of atypical to his experience, but I don't think that either of those capture what he was really feeling. It wasn't just this minor modicum of confusion that was on Pilate's mind. Rather, the Greek word used here is best translated as marvel. This text says that Pilate marveled at Jesus' silence. And why? What was so marvelous about this silence? What stupefied him about Jesus being quiet? We have to realize in Roman law, a, um, a defendant who made no case for their innocence, who stayed quiet after accusation, must be legally declared guilty. Like, that's the end of the trial. Acquittal was entirely contingent upon the accused speaking up. And so Pilate says, I find no grounds to convict this man, and yet, in his silence, he is willfully, legally accepting a guilty verdict. Why is he doing that? Why would he choose to be guilty? And so you wonder if Pilate was trying to sidestep his own legal constraints when he offered clemency in the form of their, their customary release of a prisoner. Um, again, Pilate cared very little for Jewish customs. He had disdain for the Jewish people. Why now, of all times, lean into, like, hey, let's, let's acknowledge one of your customs. And he, he wouldn't have done that. Perhaps he was just trying to sidestep his own legal constraints. And it was this, too, that got away from Pilate. I mean, surely he must have thought they would choose Jesus, right? Like, this is the one who just days ago had a crowd follow him into the city. Hey, welcome back, kids. You can find your parents. This is the miracle worker. Like, people threw their robes on the ground for him. Surely, surely they'll choose this man over the alternative. But that's not what happened. When they demanded Barabbas, they left Pilate without options. And Pilate had to oversee in this bungled trial by a bad leader, a guilty murder, a guilty murderer pardoned as Jesus took his place on death row. And this wasn't just a bungled trial by a bad leader. This was yet another fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. You see, Barabbas was imprisoned for leading a rebellion against Rome and was thus one of those would-be Messiah-convicted insurrectionists who had tried to take matters into their own hands. And when the Jewish leaders drug Jesus before Pilate, remember what they accused him of? It was in the first verse. He, they accused him of rebellion against Rome. That's the charges they brought to Pilate against Jesus, the same crime that Barabbas was imprisoned for. And so in this exchange, 
not only is the sentence being transferred one man to the other, but the crime is transferred one man to the other. He's no longer regarded as an innocent man, wrongfully accused. No, he is legally, he is a legally condemned man with the stain of guilt and an impending execution for it. All of this, and Barabbas walks free as that same crime is now levied on Jesus. I know we've spent a lot of time in Isaiah, but he lifted up our illness and he carried our pain. Even though we thought he was being punished, attacked by God, and afflicted for something he had done, he was wounded because of our rebellious deeds, crushed because of our sins. There is certainly a reason that the framers of the Apostles' Creed wanted to immortalize this particular scene as a tool of remembrance for generations of believers to follow. They wanted to hold up this scene as one that would empower and generate our worship always. It was because in this sham of a trial that was absolutely bungled by a poor leader that a centuries-old prophecy about the the Messiah suffering for his people was fulfilled. And all of those far-off, abstract promises of hope in Isaiah have finally made themselves close. And they have a name. Well, shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection, the apostles actually started to connect the dots between the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 and what happened at the trial of Jesus. And we actually get a really unique vantage point. We get to see one of the conversations about this text happen in Acts chapter 8. The apostle Philip encounters an Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch who somehow has a scroll of Isaiah. And he's reading from Isaiah 53, the long text that we read together. Look at the scene with the two of them. Then the eunuch said to Philip, Please tell me, who is the prophet saying this is about, himself or someone else? So Philip started speaking, and beginning with the scripture, proclaimed the good news about Jesus to him. Now as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, there's water. What is to stop me from being baptized? So he ordered the chariot to stop, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him, and he went on his way rejoicing. It's funny, and in seminary they'll teach you a major component of any good sermon is a real, concrete, and tangible application, something that each of you can arm yourselves with and take with you uh, to live a more devout life. And ordinarily, we, we take a lot of time pining over those things, asking ourselves, how now shall we live? And we try to present these applications in deeply compelling ways. Um, but I found my work done this week by the reply of a first-century Ethiopian eunuch. After hearing the description of God's suffering servant, the one promised to deliver the estranged people. And then this scene in Acts 8 is very shortly after 
the trial of Jesus. And Philip connects that dot for him. When he hears that message, he does as we should all do. He says, stop the chariot. I don't want to go any further until I have an opportunity to respond to this. What, what's to stop me? How can I be in? Can I be in? And the implied answer is, of course, Peter stops and baptizes him. And then I, I love that it includes that the eunuch goes on his way rejoicing. To say it another way, his disposition thereafter is characterized by worship. He leaves worshiping. And that is the, the only proper application when you are faced with the gospel. When you recognize precisely who Jesus is, the way he suffered to shoulder our guilt, to the only fitting way to respond is say, stop, I don't want to go any further until I can be a part of this and just to worship. We, we've said before that every sermon is just the long toast before the meal, right? And in a moment, we're going to come to this table and remember, as he instructed us to, that this is what the suffering servant did. Here, maybe differently, the words this time, when we say, this is my blood shed for you. Remember that description of Isaiah 53. When we hear the words, this is my body given for you. Remember the suffering words of Isaiah 53. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, the one who suffered for you. And every time we do this, we proclaim his death. It's important that we say we proclaim his death. We proclaim the suffering of the one who called us into covenant relationship after covenant estrangement. And I am just eager to come to this table with each of you. I am eager for Sarah to come back and for us to worship together. Because I feel like oftentimes when we try to jam an application into a story like this, it's like trying to take a picture on a summit. Like it's never going to do it justice. You just need to put the camera away and savor it. Savor what you're seeing savor the moment. We just heard the story of a God who suffered to save us. Let's savor that in worship. Let's savor that at the table. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we love you. Not nearly as well as we should. You accepted the crime. You accepted the sentence. All to make us well. And meanwhile, we were, we were the ones tormenting you. Forgive us. Call us now into worship at this table and in the songs that we sing. And like this eunuch that you allowed to be part of your family, send us out rejoicing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.